Majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, that is, what is man that you are so mindful of him? and the Son of Man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Thanks be to God. This is his word. You may be seated. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much uh, for your word and the question at the heart of that psalm, Psalm 8, is a question we will be considering over the next number of weeks. Lord, what are we that you are mindful of us and that you care for us? Who are we? And Lord, as we consider that question, help us to think clearly, think well, and to just Embrace the reality that we are created to be your image, to reflect your glory um, to the world around us, that we are called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, to declare the marvelous works of God. And so, Lord, as we consider human identity, may you speak and lead us. Thank you for this time around your word. Uh, Open our hearts to hear from you. This morning, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, we're going to be taking a break from Luke uh, for the next little while. Uh, probably, uh, We'll probably come back to Luke after Easter. Um, but for this first quarter, we're going to be looking at this question of who am I and the question of biblical human identity. Uh, just to give you kind of a brief overview of kind of where I think I'm going with this, but you know, every week's a little different. And, uh, but, but this is kind of the basic outline. In, in January here, we're going to be looking really at identity foundations. Uh, I think that's the next slide there, Mike. Uh, yeah, January. So we're going to, today we're looking at the fact that God created us to bear his image and his likeness. Um, next week, we're going to look at what does it mean to be priests in God's temple? Because it's really what the creation story is about is that God establishes us as priests in this temple that is the world, that is creation. And then we're going to look at the end of the month on the fact that we are created for community. And we'll be centering in on some texts around that. And when we get to February, we're going to be looking at the identity crises, and that's the plural, because we've got a lot of those going on in our world right now. So we're going to look at this question, what does it mean to be made male and female in his image? What does it mean that our image has fallen, that we are sinful people, that God has made a way to renew that image 
and he has purchased that image for his glory. And so that's going to be February, the identity crisis. And then in March, we're going to look at living the identity, an identity lived. We're going to talk about marriage, singleness, and family, and the fact that God created us for that, that he created us to work and to flourish, and some of that is building wealth. And what does it mean to do that in a God-honoring way? What does it mean that we're, we were put in charge of creation? How are we doing with that? And what should we, as followers of Jesus, be doing in relation to creation care? And then finally, just recognizing the fact that it's it's very interesting. We're the only species that's continually trying to make this a different and better place. You know, so all the other animals just kind of live within their environment and they just do their thing. We're the only ones who are keeping, you know, we got to make this better. We got to do this. We got to change this. And part of that is, I think, the, the hunger in us that we're exiles and this isn't finally home. We're living in exile. And so that's kind of the general outline of where we're going over the next few months. Identity for foundations, so basic biblical theology of what it means to be human created in his image this month, the crises we're facing, and the identity we need to live. So as we start this series, I want to provide for us some foundational goals and outcomes. Uh, so one of the things is that we're taught now that, you know, if, as preachers, we're, everything's supposed to be self-contained, you know, 20 minutes or less. Make sure, you know, you don't stretch anybody's attention span and don't try to connect the dots Sunday to Sunday because people don't show up Sunday to Sunday anymore. That's just reality. Uh, however, this whole series, you're going to want to track the thread through it all because we'll be coming back to things that I say today, next week, and the week after, and it's going to cycle back around to one another. So if you skip a Sunday, make sure you watch it or listen to the podcast, but try to be here because these all fit together. The question of identity is a hot-button topic in our culture, and it's mostly surrounded around in the area of sexuality and gender, and we will address those in due course But that is a more symptomatic and secondary issue to what I think we need to aim at. Foundational to everything that we explore in the series is more the core question of what it means to be human, who we are, and why we matter. When we come to this question, we're really asking about purpose and meaning. What does it mean to be human? What's our purpose? Does life have any overarching meaning? Is there more to life, to quote from Alpha? Does it matter what I do with my life? And what does a biblical view of humanity offer as answers that are both meaningful and fulfilling? Now, a lot of people try to answer the question of why we're here based on science. Whether that's evolutionary science or creation science. We're we're, we're trying to come up with a how we got here. But really, the Bible's more interested in why we're here. It's kind of like if, if I were to bake a cake and have it here this morning on this front table, it was a nice double chocolate cake with great icing and everything. A scientist, no matter what their theological commitments, could probably break it down, take it to the laboratory, tell me how it was made, tell me what the ingredients were, tell me what temperature it might have been baked at, um, tell me how old it is, and a host of other things. They, they could tell me a lot about what that cake was, but they couldn't tell me why I made it. 
Nobody could tell, a scientist can't tell anybody why something was made. There's a limit to scientific stuff, right? Like, you, a scientist couldn't tell me, you made that cake because your daughter's turning 18 in two days. They wouldn't know that. From the cake, they could not deduce a reason for it. And so science is very limited. Science is very limited. It can't ask, answer the question, why? It can only suggest how. So in exploring these questions, there's a few, th- few key things I want, to, I want to accomplish. First, is that in coming to an understanding of God's purposes in creating human beings, we would become more settled and less anxious about life. Embracing the gift we have been given and living with more joy in life. Our culture thrives in chaos and clutter, confusion and conflict. If you're not stressed out, are you even doing anything? It seems that busyness and stress is the badge of honor. It is proof that what I'm doing matters. We live in a culture of suspicion and angst while we trumpet the virtue of individual rights and freedoms, but are we really living in freedom? If we are, why all the anger and resentment and stress and anxiety? We are not living well. And with a clear foundation of what life is about from God's perspective and why we are here, maybe we'll be able to live more settled and joyful lives. So the first thing is coming to a less, uh, less busy, less anxious life and embracing joy. Second, second key outcome that I, I'm wanting for us in this series is is encapsulated in the Westminster Confession of Faith first article that we would come to know that man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. To come to a biblical understanding of human identity is to be drawn into deeper worship and wonder of who God is and then who we are as his special creation. This is my primary aim in this series, that our worship our sense of wonder and awe and amazement at who God is would grow and that we would be amazed at the fact that we not only exist, but that God delights in us. And his delight in humanity and even in our physicality is ultimately shown in the reality of the incarnation that we celebrated over the Advent season. Our creator has joined us in our humanity. Our humanity and even our physicality. That's a wonderful thing. We need to think about that a lot more. So first, first outcome. This is over the whole course of this 11 weeks. Not going to happen all in one message or one morning. Is that we would become more settled and less anxious about life and be able to live with more joy. And secondly, that we would grow in our sense of awe and wonder and worship of who God is. And then, thirdly, from this, having a solid biblical anthropology, that would be the shorthand version of saying a biblical view of what humanity is. From a solid biblical anthropology, we could then address the issues we're facing in our culture, whether it's abortion, medical assistance and dying, gender identity and sexuality issues, uh, finding fulfillment in work, all of it. 
without a good understanding of what it means to be human, human and living in the reality of what God designed us to be, we cannot engage in these issues in a compelling manner. We need to be equipped not only to communicate biblical truth, but to live in biblical truth in such a way that our lives offer an undeniable apologetic for the truth of what it means to be created in God's image and likeness and living that out. We need to live the truth to defend the truth. That means it's not just about arguments or logic, but a heart level lived out day-to-day faith and relationship with our creator. And that's why the first two goals are actually the primary goals. 1 Peter 3.15 says, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. It starts here as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. For the hope that is in you, this, this undeniable sense of being able to live out of joy and worship and wonder because the hope that God puts in us. That's what apologetics is all about. It's, it's about expressing the reality that our hearts are already living and doing it with gentleness and respect. This is so, so important. With gentleness and respect. As we engage the questions of human identity from a biblical perspective, my goal is not to provide ammunition to engage in a war of words and demands with the culture. My goal is to engage questions in a manner that flows out and results in great commandment, motivation for great commission, mission. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. James 3, 13 to 18 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast or be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But wisdom that from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This this again is so foundational when it comes to any sort of apologetics or, or engagement with cultural issues is that it has to come from this place, this place of wisdom, that is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That has to define how we do apologetics. It has to. That's the fruit of the Spirit. But if it comes out of jealousy and bitterness and selfish ambition and boasting, then James says it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. You know, and sometimes we just want to tell people what to do and get mad at them. Guess where that comes from? Not the Spirit of God. Rather than building walls, we need to be building bridges. This is what apologetics is about. This is what cultural engagement means. 
We practice cultural engagement with gentleness and respect, loving our neighbors as ourselves, even when and especially when they don't agree with us. Jesus never qualified the greatest commandment based on how people respond to us. He didn't live that way either. In fact, he demanded, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, Matthew chapter 5, 44. Therefore, a church with a robust biblical anthropology will be a place of welcome, not war, a people of compassion, not condemnation, practicing grace, not griping, and a place of restoration, not rejection. But this requires clarity and commitment not only to what we believe about human identity and value that we find biblically, but also why it matters and why it leads to living a life that is full and satisfying and joyful and worshipful and meaningful. Therefore, we need to know, not just logically and mentally, but emotionally, spiritually, relationally, and vocationally, the value and purpose that God has for us individually and as a community. If we are living in awe and wonder and worship because of what it means for us to live in harmony with God and his purposes for creating us, we might just have a credible witness in a culture that is longing for meaning and purpose and fulfillment and isn't finding it. So, where do we start? Cue the sound of music. Start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28. Three short verses that will take a long time to unpack over the coming weeks. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's interesting how much the author repeats the same thing over and over in three verses causing us to slow down and think. There is a specific purpose for which God created us. My main point this morning is this. Human identity begins in the mind, heart, and will, and action of God to create us in his image. Human identity begins in the mind, heart, will, and action of God to create us in his image. Then God said, Let's do this. We'll be coming to back to these verses in Genesis 1 often, so I won't unpack everything here today. Two things that we will look at today are the repeated words image and created. Image and created. Each of these words is used three times. In fact, all of Genesis 1 is kind of uh, organized around groups of sevens and threes. We'll come back to these, uh, these things over, over time, but these two words, image and created. Image is used three times. What is this? The Hebrew word is tselem, and it only occurs 16 times in the Old Testament. It basically refers to a representation or likeness of something, 
Five times it's used in Genesis. Three here are in this passage, and the other two are in uh, Genesis 5, 1 to 3, where Adam uh, has Seth, and Seth is said to be in the image and likeness of Adam. And so there's a family element, family resemblance that's happening here. And then in the covenant with Noah after the flood, uh, when it comes to murder, uh, God says, because man is made in, after my image. That's the reason for the, the, the covenant that, that God institutes with Noah after the flood. So even in the fallen state, it is still the image of God that's important in this respect. So the image is a likeness. It's a family resemblance. Now throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it also refers, refers specifically to a representation of a deity, representation of a god. And as such, any idol was forbidden in the tabernacle or temple or in Israelite religion at all. There was to be no idol making. Don't note that that doesn't mean all sculptures because Moses was instructed to craft two big winged cherubim over the mercy seat in the tabernacle and over the ark. So it didn't mean that there was to be no art or no depiction of other creatures, but there was to be no attempt at imaging God because God already provided that. It's significant that this comes at the end of the Genesis 1 creation account in which God speaks order into chaos and creates environments which are filled with life. In ancient Near Eastern thinking, this account has many similarities to other creation stories which culminate in the enthronement of the victorious God and establishing a temple shrine, the final act of which is installing an image or likeness of the deity in the Holy of Holies. And guess what? In Israelite religion, there's to be none of that because God has already created the image to work in his temple. Just take a look around the room. We're the image of God to represent him as the victorious creator. Carmen Joy Imes in her book, Being God's Image, states that the selim is something concrete. Cognate languages in the Old Testament um, used to describe idol or statue in a temple or a high place. And in Israel's temple tabernacle structure, the image is prohibited because God has already provided the image. Therefore, to install any other image in the temple is to replace with wood, stone, or metal that which God created to be living, breathing, bleeding, speaking, moving, worshiping, singing, laughing, and crying. That which represents the one creator God on earth is human beings. And this is absolutely foundational to our identity question. God created us to image him. Now, it's sometimes argued, well, what part of us is the image? And that's just a whole Western way of thinking. It's sometimes argued that image and likeness, that humanity bears uh, that because of our intellect or our reason, our rationality or our morality, or that we're spiritual to the exclusion of the physical. However, there's no indication in Genesis 1 or 2 that our physical existence is to be viewed as separate, lower, or secondary to the spiritual. That's very foreign to Hebrew and ancient thinking. In fact, to argue that is to strip the incarnation of Jesus Christ of its importance. Jesus, the Word made flesh, 
is the exact representation of God, the physicality of Jesus is central to the gospel. Jesus is God with us, God with flesh on, the creator becoming embodied in creation to redeem and restore creation. And if we insist on the absolute necessity of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, then the body, the physical reality, is central to human identity. To separate these or to devalue the physical and elevate the spiritual reflects a Greek philosophy or an Eastern mysticism whose goal is to escape the corruption of the world and live in a forever spiritual fuzzy world out there. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Our bodies matter. Our bodies matter because it is embodiment that is integral to our image-bearing identity and vocation. Ian Proven in his book, uh, Cuckoos in Our Nest, and I'll refer to this a number of times over the series, great book, uh, on the truth and lies about being human as the subtitle. He states this, what are human beings? They are intrinsically physical creatures given life by God who breathes into each one the breath of life. They are, in a particular way, divinely animated matter. Humans are irreducibly material beings inhabiting material creation. This was the Creator's purpose. So our physical existence is not secondary to who we are. It's actually integral. And we will carry physicality into eternity. Remember the end of the biblical story is not about a disembodied existence in a spiritual-only heaven, but a resurrected humanity inhabiting a new heaven and a new earth in which heaven descends to earth. Revelation ends with God himself present to the entirety of creation. See, heaven and earth is what's called a hendiasis. It is two words that basically encapsulate the whole of everything. It means all of creation, not two separate places. It means all of creation. And the story of God's creation ends with worship and wonder of God with us. The chief end of man realized as we glorify God and enjoy him forever. There's another aspect to image to consider, and that is of community. And we're going to take more time in a couple weeks to, to delve into this, but also I'll just touch on it here briefly. Image is both singular. In his image, he, in the image of God, he created him, singular. Male and female, he created them, plural. Divine image is also something that is best lived out and viewed in community. Stanley Grenz in his uh, book, Theology for the Community of God, says this, the divine image is a shared corporate reality. It is fully present only in community. Only in fellowship with others can we show forth what God is like. For God is the community of love, the eternal relationship by the Father and the Son, which is the Holy Spirit. In our individualistic culture, our individualistic Western culture, which has also led to a very individualistic Western theology, this may sound a bit radical and questionable, but as we will see throughout this series, human identity cannot be understood in isolation. Human identity is corporate. Who we are is shaped by community, in community, the community of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from which we were created. 
given that this final act of creation is the creation of humanity, and it is the only thing that, said, that indicates there is a, a likeness, a relationship with God and reflection of his glory, we must also conclude that nothing else in creation can image God. Nothing else in creation can, can show what God is like apart from human beings, and this is important. All else that God created does not bear his image and likeness. Nothing else is given the task of caring for, shaping, ruling over along with God all the other elements of creation. The author in Genesis repeated it twice for us. God not only creates us to represent him, but to exercise kingship with him over creation. And this is foundational to human identity. It is the ground from which everything else needs to flow. It is foundational to our sense of wealth, worth, and purpose. So to summarize, the image created in the image of God is a representative of the divine. Humanity in creation, the living God can only be represented by living beings, and living beings are, the only, are, are only going to do that well when we live and we thrive in community. The other word we want to consider briefly today is the word create. The Hebrew word is bara. It occurs 48 times in the Old Testament. It's the second word in the Bible. In the beginning, he created. And then comes the word God. <laughs> he created. The root denotes a concept of initiating something new. To bring it into existence, the, the word in, this, in the form that it's used here is used only of God's activity, and thus it is a purely theological term. This means, to use this, uh, a phrase from Stanley Grenz, that we have our origin in God. We have our origin in God, and that has at least one significant implication from at the outset of the series. It's from Stanley Grenz. The statement that God is our origin affirms that God is the source or the ground of the essence called human. God has the prerogative to declare what it means to be human. God's prerogative to determine the human essence is an outgrowth of his position as creator. As the creator, God is our fashioner, and therefore he alone has the right to declare what it means to be human. It's kind of like going back to that chocolate cake thing. Anybody can make a chocolate cake, but what's the meaning of it? What's the purpose of it? What's the, the outcome of it? Only the person that makes the cake and has it, or is you know, buying the cake from Bruce, because he'll do a better job than I will, and bringing it home has any idea what it means. God is creator then has the prerogative to declare what it means to be human. To be image is to be God's representative, embodying his character and purposes on earth. To be created is to recognize that we have our origin in God and therefore our identity is defined by him. Only he, as creator, has the whole picture of history and humanity before him. Only he knows the purpose of our lives. 
Only he can define what it means to be fully human because he knows why we're here in the first place. You know, if you read through 20th century philosophy or, and they wrestle, all philosophers wrestle with this question, what is the purpose of man? What's the purpose? What's the purpose? You can get a guy like Nietzsche who's like, the only purpose is the will to power, the will to dominate all life. It's Sauron embodied, like just dominate everything. Be in charge. Be the boss. But here we have God saying, I know why I created you, so if you would just maybe pay attention to what I have to say about your purpose, maybe you'll actually find it. That God created humanity to co-rule with him as his representatives on earth raises an interesting question. Why? You ever wondered why God created humanity? Like, why did he create anything? But what's the purpose? <laughs> right? <laughs> Why would a creator need help ruling the earth? If God lacks nothing, if at his very word everything came into being, if he existed eternally in perfect community in and of himself, what's the ultimate purpose of our being? And I don't think we can come up with a good answer for that, actually. I don't think that's an answerable question. We're better served by reflecting back onto Psalm 8 that, we, that Barb read for us at the beginning. The psalmist raises the question, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And guess what? He doesn't answer the question. All he comes away with, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He's just led to worship and astounded wonder that God would, would grant this reality to us. That we would bear his image and that we would be involved in his creative purposes. So we would be better served with reflecting on Psalm 8 and just going, wow, God chose to create us. And maybe that's all the reason we need. Human identity begins in the mind, the heart, the will, and the action of God to create us in his image. May this inspire us to worship and wonder that God chose to create us. He chose to create me and you. And when Paul spoke in Athens, he declared an amazing truth that should really inspire our worship. Acts 17, 24 to 28. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. As we close today, I want you to think about this. God wanted you to exist. God wanted you to exist. 
And whatever your story, however twisted and turning your life has been, God wanted you to exist. However painful your life has been, however unwanted you have felt or small that you believe your life to be, God wanted you to exist. You are not here simply because an accident of nature, nor are you here simply because your parents were in the right place at the right time having a good time. God's purposes were present in your conception, your birth, your childhood, your family, your community, your experiences, and your life today. And that may be very, very difficult for some of you to believe. There may be painful realities that have darkened your heart and ability to hear that. I want you to know that the disappointments and pains of your life and the way people have treated you and the way you have treated yourself breaks the heart of God who created you. It's why Jesus came. He also knows all the mistakes you have made in your life and the pain that you have caused others and the choices you are making to try to manage life on your own apart from him and that destroys his heart too and that's why Jesus came. God's purpose for you today, for each one of us in this room, is to discover the God who created us and who wanted us, who formed us for fellowship with himself and each other. Your moment in history is not an accident. Your birthday was not left to chance. If Paul's claim in Acts 17 is true, then you are alive today and you are in this room today because of all the times and places in the history of the world, this is where you need to be to discover the reality of who God is and come to him in worship and wonder for the life he created you to live. Our identity begins in the mind, heart, will, and action of God to create us in his image. Let's pray. Lord, as we start the series, there's just this one central thing that we need to be in wonder and awe of, and that is you simply decided to create us. You just decided as an act of your will to create people. And in your sovereignty, you knew everything that that would mean. And the story that we read from cover to cover in the Bible, you are the eternal, self-sufficient, all-glorious God who is not restricted by time, and so you see everything as now. And you saw the betrayal of your special creation. And yet you did not give up on us. You sent your one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is how God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were still sinners, while we were still broken, while we were still running from God and trying to do life on our own, God sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
And so, Lord, we thank you, and we want to come and, and just be in awe and wonder, first, that you created us at all, that you have given us this responsibility to bear your image, to show the world what you're like, and how we live, how we treat one another, how we treat the world around us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we go through this series, that the great command would ring in our ears over and over again. That all the law and the prophets hang on these two things. Even the purpose of our creation hangs on this one command, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.